Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to June's podcast series on one month to better investigations and internal reportings. So what do you do when the call, the email, or the personal tip comes into your office where an employee reports suspicious activity somewhere literally across the globe? That activity might well turn into a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act issue for your company. In today's climate, it can turn into issues under lots of different anti-corruption jurisdictions. The Brazilian Clean Companies Act, the UK Bribery Act, or even domestic anti-corruption laws such as brought GSK to bear in China. As the Chief Compliance Officer, it will be up to you to begin the process which will determine in many instances how your company will respond going forward and will set the tone throughout this most difficult period. This month's podcast series will provide to you all the steps you need to consider going forward. I'm going to take a look at independent versus in-house investigations, investigation protocols, the different resources that a compliance practitioner may bring to bear in an investigation, such as internal audit, IT, and legal. And I'll take a look at special issues such as privilege, Upjohn and Miranda warnings, data privacy, and of course, the Yates memo and its effect. I think you will learn a lot this month if you follow this podcast series. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to the June podcast series. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to day 22 of one month to better investigations and reporting. Yesterday, I took a look at an article by Ryan Hubbs in which he detailed 10 factors leading to hotline distrust. Today, I want to pick up on that article with Hubbs' tips for building a trusted hotline reporting program and culture. Talk about the SEC whistleblowing program and conclude with a few thoughts on why experienced investigative counsel is so critical in these. So organizations implement and maintain hotlines, trusted programs, hotline programs differently depending on their sizes, cultures, geography, and many other factors. Yet they must decide if they'll construct such, uh, how they'll construct such programs. Many organizations find benefit to taking it outside um, from the experience and expertise to the appearance of independence, which can uh, increase employee trust. A smaller organization may not be able to do so. Nevertheless, uh, there are many competent companies that put on uh, hotline services for small individuals. So what can you do to help build trust for your reporting system? Number one, training and awareness. Increased awareness of the program will help build employees' confidence around it. An organization should continually strive to help employees know that the hotline reporting system program works, why the organization believes in it, who operates it, and why it's critical a critical part of the culture of the company and the compliance ethos of the company. Organizations should include hotline <coughs> frequently asked questions and answers and employee for all employee new hires and supervisory training. Number two, ongoing communication. Communication about a hotline uh, reporting program, uh, recent compliance issues, and messages from management should be a routine and commonplace. Uh, I have talked about 
putting up posters in workrooms and coffee rooms to announce hotlines, but you have to continually communicate it. Think of uh, the example of Lewis uh, Sapperman at Dun and Bradstreet, where they're continually uh, communicating via the company's internal social media uh, program about the hotline. Number three, accessibility. Information on a hotline reporting program and how to report a concern should be within one click of the organization's intranet or external website. An organization should communicate program information in as many languages as is, is as necessary to provide coverage. Certainly here, the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission have made clear in the 2012 guidance that uh, local languages must be uh, respected and utilized. Web-based reporting platforms should be available to facilitate anonymous reporting and allow for inclusion of attachments. Conversely, you may have a situation where a large amount of your workforce does not have access to a computer. They may be in a country where there's limited internet or, frankly, they may not be trained on computers. So you have to have other mechanisms as well. Number four, transparency. Prominently display your organization's hotline reporting and investigative process, including the expertise and contact information of your trained investigators, what employees should expect, plus the organization's responsibilities, cooperate and protect against retaliation. And we have talked about uh, anti-retaliation before, but I'm going to emphasize it again because it is so important. You must incorporate the fair process doctrine. You must not retaliate, and you must make clear to your employees that you will uh, not tolerate retaliation. Number five. Proficiency and objectivity. Those who manage the hotline and investigation process should be technically proficient, professional, well-trained, and experienced in the handling and reporting of concerns. The organization should also install adequate systems, processes, and technologies to support the investigators and ultimately the employees. This includes an in-depth and routine uh, training, I would say it no less than annually, on, for the uh, organization's investigative, legal, HR, and compliance staff. But you've got to get the word out. You've got to have uh, proficiency and objectivity. The prong three of the 2016 uh, Department of Justice pilot program required compliance expertise. So you've got to have that proficiency, and it should include into your investigative staff. And finally, are you ongoingly or on an ongoing basis assessing your compliance program and your hotline? So ongoing hotline assessments should include some of the following questions that you need to answer. How do employees currently view the hotline reporting program and corporate culture? Here you can think about Wells Fargo, where there was clear evidence that the culture had failed. Two, an organization's investigation program and reporting structures, are they properly designed? How have you designed them? Can people get in front of you? Can people get the information to the appropriate uh, disciplines within your organization? Next, are the ethics and hotline policies, procedures, and technology meeting the needs of the organization and the employees? And here let me emphasize technologies because I spoke a little bit earlier about the situation where an employee does not have access to a computer. Uh, what if they're out on a drilling rig? Would they have access to a cell phone? Or could they report in that manner? Maybe not, so they may have to use a computer. But you have to have the appropriate technology. Next, are investigations and resulting disciplinary actions consistent with the organization's desired culture of compliance? Here, you need to make sure that the actions you've taken really are consistent with your 
because employees understand this and they will watch and see what happens. Are independent reviews conducted by internal audit or external professionals with ongoing oversight by an audit committee of the hotline and the results? Finally, are complaints and resolutions disclosed to and discussed with external auditors? Are you bringing in outside experts to help you? All of this is important because of Dodd-Frank. And for those not aware, as of April of 2017, the Securities and Exchange Commission had made 43 whistleblowers awards of over $153 million to whistleblowers under the Dodd-Frank. This is a direct result of failure of corporate hotlines. Uh, the Any regulator will tell you that 95% of all employees attempted to report internally first, and uh, they were either rebuffed, they were retaliated against, or in some other way object, uh, uh, rejected. So the amount of money, fines and penalties paid out for ignoring whistleblowers, people who report anonymously, uh, is significant. Finally, as I end this one-month series, I would just like to re-emphasize the need for experienced investigative counsel for serious matters. Um, the recently had a uh, declination issued in the Lindy gas case by the Department of Justice, and it really uh, was clear to me that the counsel used by Lindy, uh, in addition to uh, convincing the company, if they weren't uh, convinced by themselves, to self-disclose was a critical factor in Lindy getting the superior decision it did, which was, which is, of course, a declination to prosecute. But also it was the investigation, and it was a uh, very difficult uh, uh, set of facts, uh, very convoluted, very um, uh, muddled up over many com countries with uh, shell companies, direct companies, and others. And so you really have to have... Uh, experience investigative counsel for things that are uh, outside the routine. And having an experienced FCPA bar who can both investigate and negotiate with the government is very critical going forward. I hope you have enjoyed this one-month series, and I hope you'll join me in the month of July, where I take a look at internal controls and compliance. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. Thank you very much for listening to this month's series. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate the podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only one-month podcast series to a better compliance program. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for one month to better investigations and reporting. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.